It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm just fine, thank you. A couple of really interesting stories on the docket this week. Yes, indeed. Um, the, uh, the first uh, issue that I thought would be of some use for people, particularly in the uh, context of the discussion about banning uh, police uh, uh, carding or interactions with people, yes. uh, would be a discussion about the circumstances in which the police are permitted to arrest or detain somebody, and then what your obligations uh, would be in terms of uh, the police stopping you if those things don't apply. That would be perfect. Uh, so, yes, let's do it. So the police have a number of uh, bases upon which they could uh, arrest somebody uh, lawfully. Uh, they would include uh, the sort of the most common one people would be familiar with, which would be to arrest somebody if they have reasonable grounds to believe that the person is committed uh, a criminal offense. The police are then, of course, permitted to uh, arrest you. Um, the police could also arrest you if they uh, if there was a warrant for your arrest, right? Something issued by a, a court or a judge. Um, there are other circumstances, however, short of uh, the police officer having reasonable grounds to believe you've committed a criminal offense, uh, that they would also be permitted to arrest or detain you or stop you in some various way. Um, and uh, one of those uh, uh, bases would be if the police uh, are wanting to issue you with a ticket of some sort. Um, and actually, there's, a, I think, a great fact pattern on the case, which is the leading case on that point, uh, that actually came out of Victoria. Um, and it's a 1979 case, uh, which is uh, Moore versus the Queen. Uh, and this fellow, Richard Harvey Moore, uh, was uh, riding his uh, bicycle uh, in Victoria, uh, and a pl Victoria police officer observed him ride his bicycle through a red light. Uh, so the uh, police officer stopped uh, Mr. Moore uh, and asked for his name and uh, uh, address so that he could write him out a ticket for going through the red light. Well, Mr. Moore uh, refused, since I'm not providing you my name and address, you can write me a ticket. Uh, and so the police officer then moved up and uh, arrested him for obstructing a peace officer. Oh. Uh, the case went off to um, trial. For some reason, the Crown proceeded by indictment. He had a jury trial, but the judge directed the jury that uh, there was no evidence uh, that he had obstructed the police officer and directed the jury to acquit him, which the jury dutifully did. Uh -huh. Uh, but the Crown appealed that to the Court of Appeal, who disagreed and said, no, this is an obstruction. There is an obligation to provide uh, your name and uh, address so the police can issue you a ticket. Uh, Mr. Moore appealed that decision to the Supreme Court of Canada, to which he rode his bicycle, hopefully not going through any red lights, uh, but was unsuccessful in the Supreme Court of Canada. And so the upshot of all of that uh, uh, interaction from Victoria in the late 1970s is that it is clear that if the uh, police are trying to issue you a ticket, uh, you're obliged to give them your name and address so they can write the ticket out for you. And if you don't do that, uh, you're obstructing them. And that would also permit the police to, at that point, arrest you. Uh, and even short of that, getting to that stage, the police would be permitted to detain somebody uh, for the purpose of writing out the ticket. You're not permitted to just uh, take off on your bicycle uh, if the police are trying to issue you a ticket of that sort. I was so, going to ask about that. The distinction between detaining someone and arresting someone sometimes lost on ordinary persons such as myself. So how does it work? 
Yeah, you're, you're quite right. And, and actually, that language is, uh, can get blurred together. Um, both of those things are important uh, because, of course, when you, uh, if you look at the uh, charter, um, it would tell you that you've got the right upon arrest or detention to be advised of the reason for that uh, and to be told about your right to counsel and various rights like that accrue to you and protections accrue to you, whether you are arrested or uh, detained. And, of course, that doesn't always uh, happen. Uh, and I suppose that's another thing that people should be aware of, um, is that the only kind of interactions with the police that are likely to ever get any um, scrutiny in court are cases where there's a, a person who's actually charged with a criminal offense, uh, and the thing winds up at a trial. Most interactions with the police, of course, never wind up being subject to any careful legal scrutiny or review by a, a judge, uh, because nothing ever comes of it and nobody's ever there to review it. And so, for example, if the police say to you on your bicycle as you've ridden through the red light, hey, you stop, <laughs> get over here, yes. what's your name, and I'm writing you out a ticket, uh, and they don't ever tell you about your right to counsel in the course of that interaction, which they should, because, of course, they're clearly detaining you, and they say, get over here, and you're not going anywhere until I finish writing this ticket out. Indeed, yes. Um, that interaction is never likely to be reviewed by anyone, right? In most cases, what's going to happen is the police are going to write you out the ticket for going through the red light, hand it to you, and off you'll pedal in your bicycle, right? Probably paying the ticket. Yes. Um, and that never winds up getting reviewed, right? There's no uh, court process whereby somebody's scrutinizing, well, hey, hold on just a minute. You know, that person should have been told about the right to counsel, uh, in that context, and that's true with most police interactions, right? And that's a challenge, of course, because even though, in a theoretical way, if somebody's constitutional rights were breached by, for example, not telling the person why they were being detained, or yes. not telling a person about the right to counsel, or right to silence, or various other things the police are constitutionally obliged to tell you about, um, unless you were... Um, uh, bound and determined to uh, go off and seek some um, theoretical remedy um, in uh, court, nobody's ever likely to review how exactly that interaction went, right? It's, most interactions sort of end on the street, and nobody there is there to scrutinize them. And even if there were to be some scrutiny of, you know, for example, the circumstance of the police stopping somebody to issue them a ticket and them not telling you about your right to counsel during that the time when they're writing the ticket out and handing it to you. Um, nobody's ever likely to look at that. And if it ever was reviewed, if you were the person, the sort of fellow who was prepared to ride your bicycle to Ottawa uh, and uh, sort of go to court without limit, uh, even at the end of that, the likely remedy isn't likely to be very much, right? Because, sort of, well, what came of it, right? Person yes. standing there for three minutes without being allowed to talk to a lawyer, please handed them a ticket, and off they went. And so... That's a challenge because, you know, I can tell you here about the legal obligations, but uh, the practical reality on the street may not always accord with the legal advice. Right? Indeed. Um, but that's not the end of it for police. They've got more grounds they can stop you. The yeah, police, for the purpose the, of pre preventing a breach of the peace, it says here. What does that mean? Yeah, the, unlike uh, a circumstance where an ordinary citizen could arrest somebody for having committed uh, an offense, like if you see somebody, um, you know, uh, smashing the window of your car with a baseball bat, uh, whether it's a wise idea or not, you'd be lawfully entitled to run over and arrest them, hold them there, and phone the police to come and get them, yes. right? The police have some additional latitude. 
They can, in fact, arrest somebody to prevent the person from committing an offense. They don't have to wait for the person to commit the offense um, if they've uh, got reasonable grounds to believe that somebody's about to commit an offense of some sort. They would be permitted to arrest them to stop that from happening, right? You know, yes. let's say you had a angry-looking person walking up to somebody else who's huffing and puffing and making fists with their hands. Have they committed an offense at that point? Not really. Uh, but the police don't have to stand there and wait for the person to punch the other individual before they intervene. They can say, look, it looked like this guy was going to go over and start yes. a fight, so I arrested him. I've, I've just stopped that before it happened. So there's some additional authority they have there. The police also have authority to arrest somebody pursuant to provincial mental health legislation. Um, and that would be if they had a basis to believe that somebody was a, a danger to themselves or others, they would be permitted to arrest them, take them into custody, and bring them to a, a hospital for assessment and treatment. Now, is that distinct from an apprehension, or is it the same thing? That would be the, I think the language is used interchangeably. Okay. I don't think most people would call that an arrest, but really it's a similar thing. And also, you would have a constitutional right to counsel in those circumstances. Interesting. Right? They okay. should be telling somebody, look, you've got a right to counsel. Uh, but on the other hand, the police have got a right to uh, lawful authority to arrest you and take you to the hospital to, for assessment and treatment and that sort of thing. Um, my general advice to people who are uh, apprehended in that fashion is to say, look, you know, the police are usually pretty busy people, and if they're taking you to get some uh, help at the hospital, uh, usually somebody will be well served to uh, accept whatever help they've got or, or yeah. is on offer. But that, of course, uh, may not coincide with somebody's mental state. They're just not in a position to appreciate that um, they're being taken to see a doctor. Right? Indeed, because the doctor themselves would be the one that performs the assessment and the certification if necessary. It's just being sectioned is when the police are involved, right? Right. And okay. from the police perspective, what it really amounts to is sitting there in the intake waiting room of the hospital for many hours, waiting yep. for the doctor to be ready. And there aren't too many police who are keen to sit on the <laughs> sit in the waiting room of the uh, hospital unless they've got some real genuine concern that somebody's going to hurt themselves or somebody else, because, yeah. frankly, it's going to take hours of their time. All right. um, there's also authority for the police to arrest somebody if they're in a state of intoxication in a public place. That's under the Provincial Liquor Control and Licensing Act. Um, that's an interesting thing. That language is pretty broad. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, judicial um, uh, gloss that's been put on that in terms of sort of what is the, what's intended there. Is that the person who had one glass of wine with lunch? Well, I suppose yeah. you're in some way intoxicated. But the judicial gloss on that would be uh, effectively somebody's intoxicated to the extent they're going to pose a danger, you know, the person okay. who's wandering into traffic or that sort of thing. Okay. So again, that's another ground to arrest somebody. Um, there's also, and this is important for people to know, uh, there are, unlike the circumstance where you're just walking down the sidewalk, the police have very broad authority to stop somebody if they're driving a car. And the theory of that is that driving a car is a licensed activity. You're not just free to do it because you want to. And police are permitted to stop anyone with no basis to believe they've done anything wrong while driving. If the stop is for the purpose of making sure the person's sober, they have a driver's license, they have insurance, or there isn't some other Motor Vehicle Act problem, they can't do it for some uh, ulterior reason. Like they couldn't say, aha, I'm going to use my Motor Vehicle Act uh, authority to stop somebody and check their license when I'm really trying to find out if they're a drug dealer. Yeah. That would not be on. Uh, 
but but for that authority, you could then drive around with no license and no insurance with impunity as long as you didn't go through a red light like Mr. Moore did uh, on his bike. So if you're driving a car, you are subject to being stopped really at any time as long as you're being checked for those purposes. Interesting. So All right. I didn't know this that. Is, so this is, a lo- this is a long list of various ways in which the police would be lawfully permitted to arrest you, detain you, stop you, uh, require identification, and so on from you. And all of those various reasons are separate from, um, oh, and I should say one more. There, there's another one which came to mind, which is uh, a stop for an investigative detention. Uh-huh. And an investigative detention would be something short of um, arresting somebody for committing a criminal offense. Uh, the idea there would be that um, if if a police officer has reasonable grounds to suspect that somebody is associated with a particular criminal activity, they would be permitted to, at least in a brief way, stop them and ask them questions, uh, and in that context even do things like pat them down for weapons if there was a safety uh, consideration. Hmm. Um, and the case from the Supreme Court of Canada that confirmed all of that is a case called Man from back in 2004, um, and that was a case where the police were responding to a break and enter, and they observed an individual who matched the general description of the B and E suspect walking away from the location on the sidewalk casually. The police stopped this fellow, um, and then they patted him down, searching for what they said were concealed weapons. They felt a soft object in his pocket, not a weapon feel, uh, and then decided to search his pocket where they found a bag of marijuana, uh. charged with a marijuana offense. The Supreme Court of Canada finally said the stop was okay, right, because uh-huh. they had this, they were investigating a particular thing, this break and enter. This guy was walking away from the area. He generally matched the description. So far, we're good. Uh, and even you could do a brief pat-down search for officer safety for weapons. But that interaction went off the rails once they reached into the pocket to pull out the soft object to find the marijuana. And so that was the limit of what was permitted. The marijuana was properly excluded, and he was acquitted of the marijuana offense. But the police do have that power, which is where they have something short of reasonable grounds to believe the person has committed a criminal offense, but do have um, enough there to uh, reasonably uh, conclude that uh, this person is connected with a a particular uh, crime and that a detention is reasonably necessary to investigate they have reasonable suspicion enough to investigate that particular thing. So all of what I've talked about so far are grounds the police could arrest, stop, or detain you that are separate from what's currently being uh, sort of debated publicly concerning these um, uh, stops of people that yeah. are referred to as street checks. Yeah. And the, the street check would really be the kind of check which is for none of the above purposes, right? They, they're not investigating a particular crime. They're not trying to give you a ticket. They don't think you're drunk. <laughs> they don't think you're about to commit a criminal offense. They're just stopping and talking to you and potentially saying, may I see some identification? Hmm. Now, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. There's a person in that circumstance when the police have none of the above uh, things we just talked about, reasons for arresting or detaining you don't have any obligation to speak to the police or to provide identification. The rub is that there's nothing stopping the police from asking you for identification, right? Just like uh, you'd be free to walk up to a police officer and say, may I see your driver's license, right? They're quite free to say no, and you're quite free to say no when they're asking you for identification or your license. Interesting. The problem for people, of course, is that 
you can't know whether the police have any of the uh, grounds that might exist that would permit them to lawfully permit permit them to require identification of you, right? It's it's almost impossible for you to know, you know, do they have grounds to believe that um, I was about to commit a crime or that I did commit a crime or that they are investigating that B and E that I'm walking away from. Uh, and so it can be very hard for people to know what their obligations are. And, of course, it can be very intimidating, right? If you have yeah. a police officer who's armed, they come up to you and say to you in an official-sounding way, you know, please give me your driver's license. You know, what's your name and address? Yeah. <laughs> person is going to It's going to be the bold person who says, I don't have any obligation to do that. Why are you asking me for that? Well, Mr. Moore found himself at the Supreme Court of Canada for doing that after committing a violation, though, and I guess that's the material difference. Yes, but even there, of course, there were differences of opinion. The trial judge didn't think he had any obligation to do anything at all. (laughs) And so for the average person, it can be really difficult to know what you're required to do and not required to do. Um, And there is concern that um, there could be police asking for these things for some improper purpose. And there's been talk of a study that was done over in Vancouver where they looked at the um, ethnic background of the people who were stopped for this kind of a check, like yes. not to be arrested. Uh, and one of the things it concluded was there was a higher proportion of people who were Aboriginal that were stopped and asked for identification than the percentage of Aboriginal people in the population generally, right? Yes. I think it was 15% of the people that were stopped were Aboriginal. And I've heard varying figures about um, percentage of Aboriginal people in the population as a whole, I've heard figures anywhere between 2 and 5%, yes. depends where you look. Yeah. Might also depend how you define Aboriginal, right? Um, but uh, one of the problems when you look at that statistic is that in Canada we have a really unfortunate uh, uh, combination of people who are Aboriginal and people who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. Yes, And that comes from our long and really unfortunate history of treatment of Aboriginal people in this country. Yes. Uh, and the other reality is that your prospects of being having the police come up to you and talk to you or ask you what your name and identification is are far greater uh, if you're poor and homeless or, and spend time uh, sort of on the city streets than if you're hopping in your BMW at the end of the day and driving home to Oak Bay. I can see that. I yeah. dare say if you're driving home to Oak Bay in your car, you're never being having any interaction with the police at all. Uh, you wouldn't know what any of this is all about. But if you spend your days sleeping and living on the street, you're much more likely to come into contact with the police and have these sort of inquiries made of you. And from the police perspective, uh, there is a strong correlation between people who are living on the street, experiencing poverty and homelessness or drug addiction or mental illness, because all of those things go hand in hand with being on the street, and the commission of crime, right? Because of how we deal with drugs in this country, people who are addicted to drugs or living on the street, are much more likely to be involved with petty criminal activity in order to pay for those things. So you have this negative feedback of people who are in some ethnic minorities experiencing poverty, and therefore they wind up with greater interactions with the police, and they're much more likely to have uh, these sort of negative interactions about, you know, what's your name, can I see your ID, which you're not experiencing if you are not living in that circumstance. So it's really complicated uh, and really hard for the person who's finds themselves in that position to know just 
exactly what are they required to do. Let's get a break in. Uh, sorry, I'm a little late on that, but I didn't want to interrupt that stream of thought because I think it was very beneficial for all of us to hear that. Michael, thank you so much. A quick break. We're back right after this. All right. We've got about three minutes left in today's conversation with Michael Mulligan. As Legally Speaking continues here, Michael, we've got a couple of different stories we could do. One with respect to class actions. The other with respect to consent required from the Attorney General of Canada in an interesting fact pattern. Which would you like to address? Well, why don't we start with the airplane one? We'll see how far we get. All right. Um, so this was a decision uh, uh, today by the Supreme Court of Canada to refuse leave or permission for a, a Quebec Court of Appeal decision to be reconsidered. And so the net result is that the decision of the Quebec Court of Appeal stands. And here's the fact better. There was a French citizen who was on a flight from Paris to Montreal, and during the flight... Uh, it's alleged that he had engaged, he had committed uh, a sexual offense. It's not specified exactly what that was, but something that occurred on the airplane. Now, Canada has uh, in the criminal code uh, an interesting series of circumstances in which we purport to extend our jurisdiction to prosecute criminal offenses outside of Canada. Uh, and uh, those provisions found in Section 7 of the uh, uh, criminal code uh, include provisions that allow for the prosecution of somebody who's on a plane and then a variety of things like registered in Canada or flying into Canada, various different things. But it says that if the person that the uh, Crown is trying to prosecute is not a Canadian citizen on one of these types of planes flying to Canada, it's required that the uh, Attorney General of Canada, within eight days of laying the charge, provide written consent to the charge proceeding. There's, it's really buried in there. And it would seem that in Montreal, uh, I can only assume the Crown there wasn't familiar or hadn't read far enough into Section 7, and so they didn't get the required consent when they tried to prosecute, prosecute this man. They realized that after the eight days had lapsed, and so they thought they could cure the problem by dropping those charges and then just relaying them <laughs> and, then, and then getting the Attorney General to consent. Well, that was a nice try, but the uh, the trial court, court of appeal, and now the Supreme Court of Canada have had none of it, uh, and so the upshot is that uh, if you want to prosecute somebody who's not a Canadian citizen and your crown uh, for something alleged to have happened on the airplane on the way into Canada, you best get that consent within eight days, or you're not going to be permitted to do a little end run by stopping and restarting the whole process. So, there we go. There it is. Well, that's all the time for today. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for your knowledge and your insight, and I do enjoy these segments so much, and we look forward to next week. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour, every Thursday here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers.